Welcome to the Cinephiliac Lounge. I'm Pat O'Connell. And I'm Scott Kilroy. And we're two guys who like to talk about movies over a couple of drinks. But before we begin, we'd like to just take a moment and thank you all, everyone who's listened to our, our past five podcasts. We really appreciate the support. Thanks to those who've subscribed. It really means a lot to us. We've been having a great time doing this and trying to figure out best way to go about it and we just really wanted to let everyone know that for our sixth episode how much we really appreciate it yeah this has been a great six months and we've had a lot of fun doing this and i only hope that people listening are having as good a time as we are hope so okay we'll get back to business now to our original program (laughs) today we are talking about escape from new york all right scott could you give us a brief breakdown of this film? Sure, but first... This is New York City in 1997. The United States Police Force has its headquarters on the Statue of Liberty because in 1997, the entire city is a walled maximum security prison. Breaking out is impossible. Breaking in is insane. John Carpenter's Escape from New York. Released on July 10th, 1981, Escape from New York tells the story of the United States in the future year of 1997, where crime has risen over 400% and the island of Manhattan has been turned into a prison. When terrorists hijack the president's plane and send it crash-landing into Manhattan, the prison warden Hulk, played by Lee Van Cleef, hatches a plan to send Snake Plissken, played by Kurt Russell, into the prison with less than 24 hours to rescue the president and his mysterious audio tape that might decide the fate of the world. Snake Plissken is a former Special Forces veteran who turned to a life of crime and has been convicted of trying to rob the Federal Reserve. If Plissken could save the president and bring back the mysterious tape, he will get a full pardon. If not, two small bombs in his neck will explode, killing him. The movie also stars Ernest Borgnine, Donald Pleasance, and Isaac Hayes, and was written by John Carpenter and Nick Castle, and directed by John Carpenter. So, Pat, before we get into the movie, what are you drinking tonight? Okay, i trying to figure out what to do with this particular film, and I came across something that I thought fit thematically, although I'm not sure how I'm going to feel about it when I'm actually drinking it. I'm holding in my hand a mason jar of Midnight Moon Moonshine, cherry flavored. So it's grain neutral spirits with cherries added. It's 100 proof, made by Piedmont Distillers in Madison, North Carolina, distilled from corn. Now it says here, instructions for use, best served under rocks with a splash of cola or club soda. I, I have a feeling that this may be best, and there's actually like, you know, cherries at the bottom of this thing. I have a feeling that this probably is best Mixed, but in the interest of keeping with the dystopian harsh future we're about to discuss, I'm going to make my immediate future harsh and try this just with ice. So, <laughs> wish me luck. Okay, so the color, the color is um comes out. It's kind of like a like a like a cough syrup red, right? So maybe you could say blood for Escape from New York nose. I really can discern nothing but alcohol. I'm trying to sniff it. Let's try to dive in here. Mm. 
Okay, let me see. It's weird, maybe because of the ice is a little bit. I expect it to be really harsh. It's not. It's not harsh, but I really. It's just kind of like a hint of of sweetness to it, and uh, it's got quite the alcohol kick as you would expect in the finish. Finish is a good snake pliskin burn, I would say. Nice. <laughs> My thinking was if. They don't really show. They show people smoking, and they they talk about making gas. No one really drinks in the film, but any anyone who's in the maximum security prison on the island of Manhattan, you know that Brain is probably making moonshine for the Duke as well as everything else. <laughs> yeah, he must be. He must be. So, what are you drinking tonight? Well, I've I've got a weird one. My friend Hattie, who we have a tradition of whenever one of us visits the other, we bring a bottle. And usually the person we visit has a bottle as well. So we, we kind of swap them back and forth and try different things. And he brought to me this Japanese whiskey, Yamoto, which you can find almost nothing about on the internet. There's like a really bare bones webpage about it. It's 80 proof. It's small batch, natural color. And that's all it says on the label. So let me take a sniff and a sip and tell you what I think. It is really light golden brown, much lighter than most bourbons or scotches. Let's see the nose. It's very subtle. I get just a hint of just general fruit flavors. Took a sip and I got some maple. Maybe a little ginger, but I don't know if that's in my head or if that's really in it because it's so light that it, it uh, it's almost not there. And the finish is almost nothing. Um, <laughs> so it's not bad, but it's not... I, I don't know if I'd buy it again. You know, it's enjoyable, though. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a swig of my um, moonshine cough syrup and, and then ask you, what, what were you drinking while you watched the film? Sure. Is it getting any better or is it still uh... no i no i think i'm just gonna have to drink more <laughs> all right but what were you drinking when you um ooh, watch the film oh guys if you do this you you, you gotta cut it with something else but <laughs> what were you drinking scott when you watched the movie i was drinking modelos okay that's been my cheap go-to beer lately it's a pretty good beer. It's not it's it's not phenomenal, but it's it's got a nice flavor to it and it's usually on sale. So <laughs> I can get behind all of that. I I discussed at the at the end of our last podcast when I drank the tried rye for the first time that I would that I wanted to try making an old fashioned with it. So that's what I did for this for for my first viewing. I I made an old fashioned with the bullet rye. I looked up different methods of concocting the the uh, recipe and I, one of the things i saw said if you heat the orange zest it's supposed to the peel it's supposed to enhance and caramelize the natural oils or whatever and 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 i was like oh that sounds pretty cool i'll, I'll try that so i did that and i really liked it the spice still prevails over the sweet um when you use the rye it's very aromatic yeah i i, I enjoyed it it's very smooth it's 
the opposite of midnight moon moonshine <laughs> with its pliskin burn but the next time i go someplace like a, a restaurant or even a bar and i decide you know what i'll have an old-fashioned i'm going to request using rye because it's very refreshing cool that sounds great i've never heard of burning the uh of the burning the, the skin of the orange that's that's pretty interesting yeah like heating it um, heating it not burning it sorry no, no, it's fine. I think I think some people did, but I just kind of heated it up a little bit just to just to try it. I, I don't know. It was interesting. I I, lo- I love the I love the ritual of it. So that was fun. Cool. Nice. So should, you want to jump into the let's movie? Dive in, you know, let's uh, let's talk Escape from New York. Where was the first time you saw this film? The first time I saw this film, I was probably sixteen or seventeen. At a friend's house, we rented it because we thought it was going to be really violent. And we had a blast watching it. <laughs> really crappy copy from the video store, but a lot of fun. How about you? Okay, I, this is, I distinctly remember going to see For Your Eyes Only at the UA Quartet on Northern Boulevard in Flushing, Queens. This theater is gone now. It closed in like 97, which oddly enough is the year that this movie is supposed to take place. And when we were there, I remember staring at the poster for this film and telling my father that I that I, def, I definitely wanted to see it. I But but we never did see it on the big screen, unfortunately. I did, I did wind up seeing, I think, Beastmaster <laughs> there. And... Oddly enough, I saw an I saw another film that came out at the at the same day. This this film came out July tenth, nineteen eighty one. So it is in the fortieth anniversary. But I actually saw it. I saw it. I was younger than you were when I saw this film. I saw it maybe a couple of years later on VHS, and and I loved it. And it became a staple. I rented it many times, and, it, and if it was ever on TV, I never missed it because. Because I loved it. Yeah, it's a fun movie. I mean, it's 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 kind of a depressing setting, <laughs> but uh, it's it's a lot of fun. Oh well, yeah. I mean, well, oddly enough, here's a film that it's talking about 1997 and turning uh, Manhattan to a maximum security prison because of the violence and the crime rate. And one of the things that I think is interesting is. That this movie, this movie was written by Don Carpenter in early 70s, 73, 74. And it was kind of, kind of a reaction to a couple of things in the 70s. Watergate, the disillusionment with Nixon and the presidency, which is why there's a whole theme about the president and, and the anti-authoritarian view of the film. It's colored because when he wrote this script... And also there was the Iranian hostage incident, a couple of other things that happened that, that kind of kind of got funneled. And then just the general the general state of New York City specifically in the 70s or early 80s when this film came out. It was a it was a really dark, dark and violent, dangerous time. And watching it this watching it again now in the current climate through the, the pandemic COVID lens, it's kind of creepy and weird how, so here we're celebrating the 40th anniversary of this film and all the things 
that inspired Carpenter to do this reactionary kind of action, campy action, almost comedy with horror tinges as a statement against that. We're because of a side effect of events because of the pandemic, New York specifically has, and I think I've brought this up at other podcasts, it seemed to, the the city, when you look at the newspapers and what's going on, parts of it seems to have reverted back to the 70s and early, the danger, the the level of crime and what's going on. Oh, yeah, no doubt. (laughs) And specifically for New York, with with our mayor and with our, with a governor that has had to resign in disgrace and... Uh, past and and now currently with the presidents that have been in place during that time, it's kind of eerie how we kind of feel like we're back in the same spot for the 40th anniversary of this film. I, I have to admit, when uh, when I first rewatched it, I was like, God, this is a depressing future they are imagining. I mean, it's just horrible. <laughs> I was reading that something that was cut out or was was in one of the drafts of the screenplay was that most of the general population of the United States had been hit with nerve gas for wor- from World War III, and that most of the people in the rest of the country were going crazy because of it? For during the film, you mean? Yeah, like during, during the time that this is taking place in New York, the rest of the country is equally as a mess. Yeah. And they, was, they were supposed to bring that up, and I guess it got cut out of one of the drafts. But I just thought... Man, this is a bleak, bleak future they're imagining. And yeah, we're kind of living it now. You're right. In the audio commentary, there's a, uh, on the DVD that I have, has Kurt Russell and John Carpenter doing commentary. And to illustrate how things seem to have gone full circle in many respects, and especially, like I said, the, the film's message and their concerns are just as relevant now as they were 40 years ago. Carpenter says, during the sequence when Snake, Maggie, and Brain are in the station wagon and they're do- going down that gauntlet of Broadway and you've got just rows and rows of people just throwing bricks and attacking and trying to kill them. During that sequence, Carpenter says in the commentary, and this, is, this commentary is from 20 years ago, he said, I always felt this kind of resembles New York right now, right now, which made me kind of chuckle, but also it was kind of eerie. And, and the other thing that's kind of eerie watching it now is that shot when the president's plane air force one is heading into new york and you see the towers in the distance it's kind of creepy yeah yeah absolutely and also where if you look at as i said newspapers right now crazies really do live in the subways now <laughs> just right. like they do in in, <laughs> in the film escape from new york they're not cannibals or at least i haven't read anything about cannibals but I, you never know what you're going to read from day to day. <laughs> the crazies were great, though. I, I love that part of the movie. Yeah. It was totally John Carpenter going back to his horror movie route. I just love the way they were filmed. I love the fact that you saw shadows of them first. Yeah. There's a couple of things going on. I mean, it's tied to the crazies is a direct. I'll probably touch upon this again later, but he has specific, just undeniable homages and referencing to other films and directors, Frank Doubleday plays the character who is a great character called Romero. And he's called Romero as a homage to George Romero, who also did a film in 1971 called The Crazies, 
which I recently watched and is great and is also very bizarre to watch in this period during an actual pandemic. But yeah, the crazies were great. And there's also, there's always, there's something that this film is brimming. There's always, there's always scurrying of people, of rats. There's always scurrying of people in the background or in the foreground and you never quite see them. There's always movement and dangerous, like who's out there, what's going on throughout the entire film. It's really amazing how it, it, uh, it goes back to some of the horror stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, you never feel safe. There's never a point where these characters ever rest. Yeah. He does lean on some of the tropes and or tricks of horror for a, a number of sequences. He, he's, he pretty much he almost steals from his own toolbox a lot of times, having just done The Fog and Halloween before this. Yeah, it's amazing. He had a string of hits. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, and speaking of the Romero character, you know the doctor's name, the doctor who puts the injection of the little explosives oh, yeah. into his neck, you say it. is David Cronenberg. Yeah, Dr. Cronenberg. Dr. Cronenberg. No, I just thought that was a nice reference. I didn't even catch that in the movie. I was watching the end credits, and I saw Cronenberg pop up, and it's such a distinct name. I was like, that's got to be intentional. It's absolutely, yeah, it's absolutely intentional. Yeah, which I think was a really cool, cool, you know, two really cool references. Yeah, the fact that it's, it is a reference to the director, but there are a number of films where Cronenberg actually plays a doctor. So the, the, the referencing is layered here. Okay, I did not know that. Yeah, I wanted to go back. I, there's more, there's one other director reference but I'll, I'll bring that up later besides Cronenberg and Romero but I want to go back to what you had said about an earlier version of the script about that people in the rest of the world had been driven crazy right I also came across something that touches upon that and some other stuff which I found interesting it said I found out that in 1981 Bantam Books they published a movie tie-in novelization written by Mike McQuay and it is significant because it includes scenes that were cut out of the film, such as the Federal Reserve Depository robbery, which I think I sent you the link. I don't know if you got a chance to watch that, but yep. that results in Snake's incarceration. So we've seen that. But the novel provides motivation and backstory to Snake and Hauk, both disillusioned war veterans, deepening their relationship that was only hinted at the film. Sorry. Okay. I think the um, I think the moonshine's giving me heartburn. Hold on. <laughs> Oh my God. I knew that this was a risk with the moonshine. Do not, do not do this. <laughs> you can keep this part in. Do not, do not do this. If you do this, listen to the label and cut it with soda or something. Going back to what I was saying, the novel also, it explains how Snake lost his eye during the battle for Leningrad in World War III how Hawk became warned of New York. And this is the thing that I was like, what? Besides what you brought up, Hawk's quest to find his crazy son who lives somewhere in the prison, which that blew my mind. I'm like, what? Wow. And then, yeah. And the novel also fleshes out the world that these characters exist in at times presenting, presenting a future even bleaker than the one depicted in the film. The book explains that the West Coast is a no man's land and the country's population is gradually being driven crazy by a nerve gas as a result of World War III, which is what you mentioned. Right. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, I don't know if I want to read that. I, I, dude, I'm on the other side of that camp. I got to get this book today. <laughs> like, I, I, I don't know why I don't have this book. I'm ashamed of myself. But anyway, 
Oh, uh, one of the things I wanted to mention, I love the gag that everyone thought that Snake Plissken was dead. And apparently that's taken from a John Wayne movie. Do you know I, about this? I, I do. Big Jake. Okay. Big Jake. Later, I was going to bring up some stuff, uh, themes, and, and talk about how this movie at its core is is a Western specifically a spaghetti western in my opinion but but it has these homages either overt or 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 subtle and yeah the that is totally uh have you ever seen big shake no i haven't i thought i owned it and i went crazy looking for it the other night and i couldn't find it i have seen this movie if you're a western fan they do indeed have scenes of people meeting him and and saying I, I thought you were dead but it's John Wayne's character usually responds he gets upset with someone at some point because they people keep saying that to him but his reaction mostly is not hardly <laughs> but yeah they they do that four times this film I counted this film does it five times okay I know Carpenter, even though he's known as a horror master, master of horror, and he's known specifically for horror, he is he is a tried and true to the bone Western aficionado. I have many DVDs with commentaries and or documentaries on American Western films and spaghetti Western films where Carpenter talks and he talks about his knowledge about the Western. He's in his first film, Sold on Pre Precinct 13, is pretty much an updated version of Howard Hawks's Rio Bravo. Okay. And Escape from New York, at its heart, is a is a Western and has Western tropes and characters. I also, as you as you know, I went through a phase. I'm a huge. I was always just, I was only a Sergio Leone fan, but I went through a phase where I looked at. I tried to just consume all things spaghetti western i love i love spaghetti westerns absolutely love them and th there's a di the difference in, and spaghetti westerns also influenced other american directors such as sam peckinpah and why american 70s films started to get be as cynical and revisionist as the spaghetti westerns are and the inclusion of lee van cleef really elevates the spaghetti western feel for escape from new york but uh, again and also there's referencing in this film specifically to howard hawks because he is carpenter is a, a devout hawks fan i also think that that while lee van cleef's character is technically called bob hauk h-a-u-k when you look at it it almost seems like he's just playing with hawk or Howard Hawks, but that's just me. No, there could be something there. I had a question for you, and I went through this. And I and I had an, an idea, and then I kind of rejected it. But one at one point, one of my notes is: Is Snake in Hell? Ooh, did he die? And this this is his purgatory, or this is his hell? That's interesting. I'm gonna. I, I want to tell everyone who's listening, thank you. And also, much like if you listen to our Outlaw Jersey Wales episode, we both jumped around a lot because we love the film. I had such a long relationship with the film. And that's certainly going to be the case, at least for me, with this particular film. But going back to it, your, your hypothesis that is Snake Plissken in hell, I wrote in my notes that 
the sequence, especially the sequence when he goes to the theater and he sees um, they're, they're doing that. It's a hilarious song. I have the lyrics somewhere I'll bring when I find through my notes. What they're saying also points to maybe current events or how New Yorkers uh, feel about being in New York sometimes. But I wrote that the sequence where he goes to the theater and he goes, he starts going down the stairs because he's tracking the, the president's, for lack of a better word, his heart monitor, the, the wristband that the, the president has that, that proves that he's still alive and he's following it. And he goes down the stairs and Cabby comes in and says, hey, you don't want to go down there, Snake. And as he descends into the bowels of the theater, as he goes down, it is a completely Dante-esque scene. There is so much crazy shit that happens in that small segment of that film. It is absolutely hellish and could be a canto from from Dante's Inferno. Yeah, no doubt. I think that's where I wrote the note. I think that's where it came up. He just seemed like he was in hell. And I guess it kind of doesn't work because he gets out. Well, I mean, we may have to offline about this but that is an interesting notion he in order to be saved he does have to be he does have to ascend and go up that's true i think you've touched upon something that never occurred to me we have to we have to do a deep dive on that thought okay that's very interesting i knew eventually i'd have one <laughs> <laughs> oh no 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 but no that that's great that whole sequence of him going down the stairs is crazy because the first thing he sees is those those like punk rock dudes tossing the girl around who seems like she's totally out of it yeah and then it ends with them like ripping her shirt which obviously seems like they're going to do something very bad and snake doesn't react at all and by the way kurt russell and carpenter touch upon that in the audio commentary apparently they got a lot of flack for that at the time or they claim they do because snake doesn't do anything and they said, well, yeah, the typical American hero would be like, you can't do that to lady. But that's not that's not Snake Plissken. Snake Plissken's like, this has nothing to do with me. I'm not going to interfere. It's like, right. you know, he has a job to do. He has he has 22 hours to literally, literally save his own neck. That's all he cares about. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we have that. And then he walks past that. Then he comes across the guy that's like, hey, buddy, those are nice shoes. And then people attack him and everything. You know, I have to give it. We have to give out a shout out to Dean Cundy, the uh, DP of this film, many other Carpenter films, and countless other films. Terrific, legendary director of photography. Apparently, they used, at the time, pretty new Panavision lenses that allowed them to shoot in very low, very very low light levels, which helped them. And is evidenced with the most of the film has this light sources. Once he's in Manhattan come from mostly fire or a few scattered light lampposts on some corners. But a, a lot of it is like that scene where he finds the DC-8 plane. It's just random fires. And that's where you see people scurrying. But in this scene, that's also all the, all the light, source light, is fire for a lot of this, which also adds to that hellish Dante-esque feel. And it, he passes that one scene and he doesn't react. And then he sees another dude. And it's just kind of crazy where you just see behind someone who silently, all you hear, you don't hear, you don't hear screams of help. You don't hear, you don't hear like screams of pain. You don't hear anything except the constant 
right. punching of some some dude leaning some other guy. You can't even see. He's just like punching him silently, creepily. And with the uh, also they had a panaglide. So panaglide going in, it's super creepy. And then of course. It turns out he kicks the guy and it's just some hobo kind of guy that has the president's monitor. And he's not upset. He's like, you, uh, you watch this. And you're like, OK, that was crazy. And also, he doesn't seem to be upset. Did did he ask this guy to do this? Because he doesn't seem to be upset that he's being pummeled. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and also, in that scene, also, I've watched this movie many, many times. It's very funny. One could argue that this is, it's really, it is an action film. It does have horror elements and it, and it can change the mood on a dime, but it really is sort of a broad satire, mostly, of the current situation for the 70s. And some could argue the current situation here in 2021, 40 years later. But after that sequence and the whole thing, and the guy's like, Oh, yeah, I'm the president. And he sees it and he's like, I knew when I got this, I'd be the president. And like right. he gets pissed off and he smashes the, the, the guy's hand down, which of course makes the guys at the you know, uh, the police force headquarters see that oh, everything's flatlined, that you know, the president's dead and they're all upset. And, and Cronenberg uh, is like, oh, it just could have been a trauma to the unit itself. And Snake is like, hey, his delivery in this one thing just had me howling this time. And he's, he uses the walkie-talkie and he tells Lee Van Cleef's Bob Hawk, all right, listen, president's fucking dead. He didn't say this, but he's like, president's fucking dead. You got to get me out of here. It's done. And Lee Van Cleef gets like, if you get in that glider, I'll shoot you down. If you climb out, I will burn you off the wall. Do you understand, Pliskin? And there's this beat and Snake, <laughs> Snake is looking at the fucking walkie-talkie like it's poor old Yorick in Hamlet's fucking soliloquy. <laughs> and ironically, he just says, yeah, he stares at this fucking thing and he just says, a little human compassion is fucking great. Like, it's the <laughs> only time that Snake really just kind of, Snake never really gets upset about anything at one time in this fucking, like I said, like a soliloquy from Hamlet, a little human compassion. Like, that's all he wanted in that one moment. Fucking hilarious compared to the rest of the film. <laughs> that is brilliant. I'm going to jump around here a little bit. One of the things I wanted to mention, Isaac Hayes gives a knockout performance. Isaac Hayes, he fucking brings it, bro. He is the Duke. He, I mean, he is creepy as all hell. The little twitch he does where he, he, he like, winks. Yeah. Yeah, and... I had I had a note about different things that all the actors, they really brought something that came from them, not from the script and not from John Carpenter. And that that twitch that you love, that was Isaac Hayes's idea. He really? want to do. Yes. He's like, I want to do a twitch and I want to do it just when he sees Pliskin. Like he reserves that twitch mostly when he first sees him outside of the train. He's like, who, who are you? And he says, Snake Pliskin. And he twitches, like, Snake Pliskin, I heard of you. I heard you were dead. And also when they're when they're racing at the end of the film to go on the imaginary, <laughs> there is no 69th Street Bridge. Anyone who <laughs> may be listening who doesn't live in New York, the one complete artistic license in this film, despite using downtown, burnt out St. Louis, Missouri, as an ersatz manhattan there is no 69th street bridge it was completely made up just for the film but when he's following them towards the very end of the film and he's in the car you see his twitch really going so yeah it's absolutely fantastic he looks great he's awesome and that twitch really 
really adds something to the character. And that was totally Isaac Hayes' idea. Oh, that's brilliant. I had no idea. I just assumed that it, it had to be something that uh, Carpenter gave him to do. But that's, that is so cool that it was his, his idea. Yeah, I loved his intro. The car was fucking bananas. So good. <laughs> so fucking good. The Cadillac with the two chandeliers. So good. And I have the soundtrack of this film. The music specifically for when he is first, you first see the arrival of the Duke with that fucking car. So good. Uh, by the way, Carpenter's score, Carpenter's always fucking great. Totally influential. I mean, the score from Escape from New York is Kurt Russell couldn't stop talking about it during the entire auto commentary. The score is fucking amazing in this movie. Yeah, it's very good. It's amazing Carpenter does that. I mean, not only not only writes directs, he scores his own movies. Yeah, there's a short list of people who can write, produce, direct act because he does have two Hitchcock-like cameos in this film, John Carpenter. Really? Yeah. One of which you, I, I didn't know. You wouldn't know. I didn't know until I listened to the audio commentary in that scene when he goes to the theater and they're doing the, um, they're watching the Broadway show of the the guys dressed in drag, singing, "Everybody's coming to New York." Wink, wink. Ha ha. Everyone's a criminal. Everyone's coming to New York because everyone's a criminal. The co-writer Nick Castle is playing piano and John Carpenter is playing the fiddle or violin in the orchestra that you see, but you can't really make them out, but you can make out John Carpenter in the sequence where, when the film has a small segment in like end of the second act where you do see daylight right before snake is going to go have his Madison square garden gladiatorial fight in a wrestling ring. And the United States police force has helicopters going in supposedly to drop off food to the prisoners. And the, the drop-off point is in Central Park. And at one point, they show a dude in the helicopter talking, and that dude in the helicopter is recognizably John Car John Carpenter. Oh, interesting. Okay, I had no idea. And apparently he's now a licensed helicopter pilot, like Harrison Ford, because of Escape from New York. He got into helicopters from this film. Huh. That's pretty cool. By the way, I love when they, they get out of the helicopter and the one guy falls. <laughs> and they're just like, I, I just, I'm like, you couldn't shoot another take of that? <laughs> He's supposed to be this badass military cop and he just falls right on his ass. Oh, so good. So good. Oh, another weird shout out. And I apologize to everyone. We're going to be all over the place. But in that same sequence, of them dropping off the food and going to Central Park. The shot where you see the helicopters come and you see buildings in the background and it's supposed to be overgrown uh, foliage from no one paying attention to Central Park. The buildings, that was all a matte painting painted by another famous director, Mr. James Cameron. Wow. He painted the matte painting for that specific shot and the, the lower half of it of the, of the, of the, the prisoners waving down the helicopter up. They're dropping off food, but they really they wave them down because they want to present the president's briefcase with the note. Hey, we'll give you the president, but you got to let us all get out of here. That note that they sent along, that whole sequence, they're in some base in California. And James Cameron made a matte painting to try to make it look like it was New York. Wow. That's really cool. 
Yeah, he did a lot of special effects for this. The special effects are amazing for those in 1981. There was no CGI, and there was no real computer effects. So all of the computer effects in the film that you see is a combination of animation, straight up. It's all analog uh, methods to replicate computer simulated images. So all that stuff of the the map of the city that you see that looks like computer graphics, that was them making a model that consisted of black cardboard and they outlined the corners with white tape and then filmed it so it looked like it was a computer image. Of it. But it's not computers. They did not use computers at all. Right. That... See, uh, you got one of the points I was going to bring up. <laughs> but yeah, that that's amazing because it, it looks like it, it could have been capable, could have been done at that time with computers, but it would have been insanely expensive, way below in the budget. So yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh, also, uh, to part of trivia, some of the buildings that were used for Escape from New York. And I found in the uh, Pat archives, I have a Christie's East film and television memorabilia, including Hollywood posters catalog for auctions from Wednesday, June 28th, 1995. And on one of the pages, auction item number 172 was Escape from New York slash Blade Runner 1979. Three original buildings made for and used in the production of the film Escape from New York constructive wood with applied black photo stat paper with geometric white lines. The three buildings were connected to form one tall building used in the scene in which snake Pliskin, Kurt Russell is approaching New York in his glider. The buildings were later repainted and used in the extreme background in Blade Runner starring Harrison Ford. That is very cool. Yeah. So maybe I'll put on Instagram, a photo of the, of the, what their example of the building that was the specific building that was used built for Escape from New York and used in Blade Runner, because I think we managed to mention Blade Runner in almost every one of our podcasts, <laughs> which I'm fine with because I'm obsessed with it, but it would also make it impossible for me to do a podcast on anything because I'm too obsessed with it. <laughs> well, I got news for you. Virginia, my wife, has never seen it. What? I know. Oh my God, how is that even possible? I don't know. I, I got it. The director's cut, just so we could watch it together. Is she not a fan of science fiction in general? No, she she likes some science fiction. She just, I don't know, she just was like, yeah, I heard about it, I, I don't know. Yeah. So, that was her reaction, and I was like, oh, you gotta see it, it's amazing. So, yeah, well, I'll report back on that. Yes, please do. Okay, well, we always manage to go down a road of all roads lead back to Blade Runner. But uh, let me try to circle back and finish our thought process on the things we liked and, you know, maybe didn't like about the film. I, there's a lot of cool shit in this film. The cast is terrific. Everyone, every, everyone in, in major supporting roles are superb. There's some really iconic performances here, I think. We touched upon Isaac Hayes and what he brought to the film from his own background or his own thought that really added something to the presence and impact of the Duke. But a lot of the other actors did a lot of stuff. I, I think Adrian Barbeau is fantastic as, as Maggie. She is definitely a Howard Hawks woman. She is no nonsense. Not only can she, which is, which was rare back then. It's more, it's, it's, it's more pervasive, thankfully now, but, in that period, horror and science fiction 
while really or gave you the most pro-feminist, able-bodied women action heroes or women heroes in general. I mean, Ripley from Alien in 79 and then then Adrian Bobo in Fog and also here, especially in in Escape from New York as Maggie. She, at some point when we talked about going down the gauntlet for down Broadway, Brain, someone's pulling at him and he's the damsel in distress because he's like, Maggie, because she's the one that has the gun. Right. And she shoots the dude. So she has to save him. He goes to her to protect him. And she's also badass later in the film. And I'll, I'll, I'll bring that up. But so she's total badass. She's fucking phenomenal. But everyone really thought out their, their characters to a degree that was really phenomenal. And you really feel the impact. Like on the bridge sequence, when she's shooting at the Duke, you see that her nails are silver. And, and I'd seen some referencing and or article where she said that she thought out she probably diluted melted down the covers of batteries to get silver and that's why her nails are silver like they really thought about their characters and Kurt Russell he's the one that gave Snake uh, uh, Snake Plissken the eye patch that was oh, totally really? his idea he had to great trivia is he they actually had to wind up giving him two different kinds one that was an actual eye patch for close ups and then one that was perforated for action sequence so he could actually see what he was doing because it fucks with you. But, and Harry Dean Stanton, he wasn't the, the first person that they asked for this, but he told Carpenter when he was approached, I don't like the lines. So he asked that if he could rewrite all his dialogue. So Harry Dean wrote his own dialogue apparently. Um, and he also decided that he was going to play brain, approach the character of brain as a young poet, which made me crack up so fucking, <laughs> so fucking good, which explains that like the weird cravat tie that he has, <laughs> and and Donald Pleasance also. Donald Pleasance came. Not only did, Donald Pleasance was concerned that he's a British actor who's obviously British who's playing the president of the United States, so he created this whole theory that something along the lines of it was in the future uh, we wound up being reintegrated with britain oh weird something to do with margaret thatcher and so that uh, a british uh, that we became a colony again and so that's why we have a british president something along those lines but he was very concerned he he had to come up with his own narrative to explain to himself and carpenter's like it was really great i didn't really use it but he, he did that and also Donald Pleasance came up with a lot of bits to make the president be more humiliated. Like when when Maggie and Brain go into the executive room to rescue the president or get the president themselves as a power play, you see Donald Pleasance is sitting there and he's tied to a chair. And that wasn't in the script for him to have the blonde wig. That's all Donald Pleasance. Really? Huh? Yeah, he came up with, like, I shouldn't be wearing a wig. I should be, like, you know, defiled and humiliated even more. And apparently Donald Pleasance actually had been, he was a a pilot in World War II and actually had been shot down and tortured and used that for the final sequences, like, and, and used that experience of having been captured in war and tortured by someone for the final scene where he enacts his revenge against the Duke. Like you are the Duke. And he fucking shoots. He was pulling from that experience. So it's very interesting that everybody really, really invested a lot in their characters. Wow. I, yeah, I have a different, you gave me a totally different uh, perspective on Donald Pleasance now, because that was one of my few, the few things that I had, I 
didn't like about the movie is like, why is the president British? <laughs> yeah. Well, they don't they don't really they don't address it at all. No. So, I mean, unless you did the deep dive, I, I would certainly think the same thing. I mean, it is weird. It is weird, but but to be fair, the, the reason why this movie works it's 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 weird on so many levels. I mean, Frank Doubleday's portrayal of Romero is inspired madness. He's, yeah. he's the one with the hair that he's like. No, no, I know, I I know who he is. Yeah, oh. he's great. He's uh, and every every you know it's funny every time he was on screen during the audio commentary with Carpenter and Kurt Russell. Russell was just laughing his ass off. Like he just couldn't. I mean, the comment they loved him and they gave him total props. They also both of them really, really love Lee Van Cleef and working with him and Ernest Borgnine. They really had nothing but glowing, fantastic things to say about them and the rest of the cast. So it seems like they really had a really had a blast doing this film. I mean, it was it seems like it was it was weird. Because they're shooting the only scene that that is shot in New York with actors, not just like the the cityscape or whatever, is at Liberty Island with at the, at the at the Statue of Liberty for that one shot. Right. That's the one sequence in the entire film that's actually shot in New York. <laughs> the rest of it is models. They have this great camera trick with the dissolve. So the camera pans down, and you see Tom Atkins as Remy talking or whatever, and he goes into the booth, this Liberty and security control, and he gets in there, he says something, and the, the cameras continues to pan slowly right, and then it goes into complete darkness, into complete black, and in there, they have that cut, and it they matched, Dean Cundy was very insistent, you had to match the same speed, and they match the same speed, and they when they go to the other side of that, what you think in the film is the other side of that one booth. They are actually in, in LA. Okay. Huh. And the will turn theater in LA is used as a stand in for the world trade center. And at the end of the film, when they try to go to get the, the glider and the bizarrely band of American Indian guys who are just chopping away, which adds to the Western theme, chopping away at their glider and, and they lose that chance and they go back down and they run out of it. The actual exterior of that, it's also in LA, it's the Century City building, which I'm pretty sure is the what the building that they used. And, well, I don't want to say pretty sure. I believe it, it may be the building that was used as the Nakatomi building in Die Hard. I think you're right. I believe that's correct. If somebody says differently, uh, let us know. Listen, if Rex Reed is listening, <laughs> which I'm sure he is, I don't. We we don't claim to be experts on this, so please don't write about it. How do you think Rex Reed is dressed as he's listening to this? I think he's wearing a vintage kimono. Okay. And he's wearing suede slippers and a cravat, and he's smoking a pipe. And he's wearing a crown made of actual gold. <laughs> I love it. Rex, please let us know if I'm wrong. I could be off point, but I feel that at least one of the th one of those things, I'm guessing the crown made of real gold, is actually true. <laughs> oh, God. I just, I just think with search engines and stuff, somehow this is going to come up to it. Somehow he's going to find out about this, and we're going to be in trouble. <sighs> 
I gave him a crown of gold. That's true. I mean, I, 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 at no point did I say he didn't deserve it. Okay. Who doesn't want a vintage kimono? That's a very good point. With that, I'm going to take another drink. <laughs> oh my! Uh, I have I drank all of my Snake Plissken Cherry Moonshine. I think I need a. Oh, I don't know if I need a refill, but but I'm going to do it. You know why? Why? Because I'm a professional, and right. I chose this drink, and I'm going to drink this drink as I talk about this film. Give me one sec. All right, you're going back in for more. I'm back. All right. Where were we? We were talking about Rex Reese for some reason. <laughs> yeah. You said you wanted to talk about things he didn't like. One of the ones I addressed, was there another one? The only other one, and this is really trivial, I'm splitting hairs here. I just thought it was weird that Leek Van Cleef shows up at Liberty Island in a limo. Like, where is that coming from? It's a very small island. <laughs> you can walk around it. You know what I mean? <laughs> but for some reason, he pulls up in a limo, and I was just like, what the hell is that? I can... I can... <laughs> that is not in my notes. I didn't even... I, that didn't even occur to me. Kudos. <laughs> Kudos. I don't I don't know. I, it could have just been his limo. <laughs> I mean, he's fucking Lee Van Cleef. I mean... That is true. Fucking Lee Van Cleef. He could do, listen, listen to that audio commentary. Uh, he could have done whatever he wanted, and Carpenter and Russell would have been like, A-OK. And also, I would also be A-OK. I mean, Lee Van Cleef is fucking awesome. And if, if you like Westerns and if you like Spaghetti Westerns, he is an absolute icon. I mean, he he did, oh, you, know, he's, he, you know, he's known for his Leone stuff, but he did other things other spaghetti westerns where he is he's the main focus and he is fucking phenomenal they're going back to whatever i'm sorry no go ahead that's it you, no 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 you go you were trying to you were uh, you were going to say something before i asked you about uh something else you didn't like about the film so let's go back to what you were trying to say before i interjected no no that was that was literally it i found i found it weird that we had an english president and I found it weird that Lee Van Cleef was driving around Liberty Island in a limo. <laughs> <laughs> Other than that, the film's pretty damn good. I don't have much to, much uh, criticism. Okay, let's get focused here because there's a lot of notes that I have. And I've been, as usual, talking in a very non-linear fashion. But I wanted to point out something I thought was very significant or weird slash interesting. There was a film that premiered or was released on the same exact day as escape from new york and that film was disney's the fox and the hound and it just so happens that kurt russell also voiced the hound copper in the fox and the hound so he had two films that premiered on the same day one where he, he plays this anarchist anti-authoritarian badass who is in a dystopian fucked up future and a Disney film where he plays the cute, lovable hound, Copper. <laughs> and it's just it's kind of insane. I, I looked at, there's a website called The Numbers, and they had the weekend domestic chart for July 10th, 1981. Number one film was Superman 2. Number two film was Raiders of the Lost Ark for that week. Number three was Stripes. Number four was Fox and the Hound. But Fox and the Hound was released in, according to the numbers, 
1,030 theaters and made $4,215,000. And Escape from New York was released in 579 theaters and made $4,162,385. So they made maybe shy of 52 grand than the Disney film, and they had half as many theaters. Kurt Russell was in the fourth and fifth highest grossing film for that week in 1981. Wow, that is funny. That would make a great double feature. <laughs> that would. That would. The Fox and the Hound. Yeah, thematically, it might be close. <laughs> I agree. Other weird stuff, you're talking about that, other behind-the-scenes trivia thing, production, shooting locations kind of shit. The opening narration for the film and the computer's voice in the first prison scene were provided by an uncredited Jamie Lee Curtis. Wow, okay. Yep. And the co-writer, Nick Castle, also, and I, I know there are a lot of people who are obsessed with Halloween, like I am obsessed with Blade Runner, and I'm, I may be talking out of school here, out of hand, but I believe he played Michael Myers throughout most of the first Halloween. That is true. I've, I looked that up. That is the case. So that's very cool. Yeah. Kurt Russell has stated that this is his favorite of all his films. Snake Plissken is his favorite character. As I said, it, the eye patch was his idea. And Kurt Russell apparently kept all his costumes from the film and was very pleased 17 years later when Escape from L.A. came out in 1996, one year before this film was supposed to take place, uh, and was, was proud to be able to, to, to still fit into them. Wow. That's not bad. Uh, yeah. Okay, here's another thing I want to talk about for film lovers, the interesting what-ifs here. So here are some original casting thoughts for Snake, what the studio wanted or pushed for. The studio executives were trying to pressure Carpenter into using more seasoned tough guys for the role of Snake. They wanted Charles Bronson, which... Would have been interesting. Listen, I'm a devout Charles Bronson fan. If Charles Bronson was Snake Plissken, I would have watched it. But right. it would have been a very different film. Yeah. And they bring in, you know, Carpenter said he was too old. I think he was probably going on 50 or 60 at then. But he did Hard Times, which is a 70s film. I don't know if you've ever seen Hard Times. No, I haven't. <sighs> okay, listen. Okay, listen. Everyone, including Scott, if you haven't seen Hard Times, it's... You must watch Hard Times. Our Hard Times is fucking great, okay? And Charles Bronson is a 50 in it, and he is in, in phenomenal shape. He's just an amazing presence in that film. It's about bare-knuckle boxing during the Depression. How fucking cool is that? Okay, you sold me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rent that. Dude, dude, listen, Hard Times. Walter Hill, who directed The Warriors, who, by the way, Warriors around this time kind of plays with the same sort of dominoes of like this kind of nihilistic, cynical, fucked up state of New York. He directed that film. A friend of mine wound up being able to talk to him and I, I gave him two CDs, I mean, excuse me, DVD covers. I had a Warriors signed by Walter Hill and I had Hard Times. And I was told that Walter Hill said that Hard Times was the scholarly choice. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cool. 
yeah, no, fucking listen. I'm sorry. This is a total aside. Everyone, if you haven't watched Hard Times with Charles fucking Bronson, James Colburn, Strother the Martin, fucking phenomenal. Great movie. Watch it. But going back to what I was saying, I could see that if you're going to try and play a character, it works better to be a rebellious younger character, I think. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Some of the other names that were bandied about were Snake Plissken, were Chuck Norris, Nick Nolte, Tommy Lee Jones. Huh. Also Jeff Bridges. But Nick Nolte and Jeff Bridges were approached, but what from what I read were uninterested. Even though Bridges later worked with Carpenter and Starman, and he's nominated for an Oscar. Actually, also, I think Chris Christopherson was also considered a possible candidate, but he was was not approached because of the failure of Heaven's Gate. But imagine in the film with any of those leads. And then here's some other stuff that was great. So Warren Oates, I think I brought this up earlier. Warren Oates was originally set to play Brain, but he became ill, and he recommended Harry Dean Stanton. Now, Harry Dean Stanton is fucking phenomenal actor and he made a great run and he was made a fantastic brain oats died later that year he uh, by a premature heart attack i think but uh, another thing was that the co-writer nick castle nick castle he's the one who invented he brought in cabbie he did the the theater sequence he he brought in the idea of the switch of the tape for the hartford summer from being what it's supposed to be to be the American bandstand tape that Cabbie had, which is, which you have to talk about. It's a great switcheroo for the end of the film and a great fuck you and subversive American to give a fuck you to the current regime while using the American bandstand theme. But he wrote the role of Cabbie with Mickey Rooney in mind. So imagine, huh. imagine a movie where, Charles Bronson is Snake, Warren Oates is Brain, and Mickey Rooney is Cabby. That's a really weird world. <laughs> <laughs> Another odd thing, especially since this movie... By the way, I have to say, I have to point out, we don't know what the president's name is. I've said before, and I'll, I'll elaborate, that I, this film is very much a spaghetti western, where there's... it in inverts of subverts the trope of the man with no name series the the hero is named the president is the man with no name what is uh, he, he is listed as simply and called throughout the entire film he is simply referred to as the president president what he has no name huh that's really interesting by the way i also love the gag of when snake plissken is talking to hauk and he just keeps telling him you know, at one point he says, call me Pliskin. And then at another point, I, I forget what his name is. But he won't let, like every time Lee Van Cleef refers to him as someone, he tells him, no, call me something else. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he, he was, he, at the beginning, he's, he, how keeps calling him Pliskin, S.D. Pliskin. We don't exactly know. I think in some other media, they actually say his name is Bob. But uh, but S.D. Pliskin, and when he says that in the first scene, he's like, call me Snake. And at the end of the film, when Bob Houck is standing there smoking a cigarette, and Snake is smoking a cigarette walking past him, or trying to smoke a cigarette walking past him, and he says uh, early in the film when he realizes that they put explosives in his fucking neck, and he grabs 
Lee Van Cleef by the fucking throat. Just, when I get back, I'm going to kill you, which is so fucking great. Like, I mean, there there's a lot of quotables from this film that throughout my entire life since 1981, I would say as a reference. And that's <laughs> definitely one of them. And when he says, like, are you going to kill me now, Snake? He's like, I'm too tired. Maybe later. It's fucking, it's fucking great. So good. But yeah, it's very bizarre, very interesting and bizarre to see what the what if of any of the other uh, other actors considered or preferred by the studio to portray Snake Plissken. Carpenter fought really hard for Kurt Russell. And Kurt Russell is always very gracious, very appreciative and very vocal about how much he appreciates that Carpenter went to bat for him because before that he was just a Disney kid and he did fucking movies like Peter wore tennis shoes and did the voice of the fucking hound copper from the Fox and the hound and Carpenter put him in this role as a fucking badass. And he, he got to have a different career and also big trouble in little China, by the way, we talked about how he channels Eastwood for this film, uh, you know, undeniably so, but he channels John Wayne for big trouble in little China, big trouble in little China is also at its very heart, it's a movie that's a complete melting pot of genres, but at its very heart, and the lead is distinctly a Western hero. Yeah, this and it's actually funny you mention that because it's hard to it's hard to see Kurt Russell as this was like a this was a change of pace for him. He's usually somewhat of a tough guy in most of his movies that I've seen him in. Yeah. And this was the start of that. Absolutely. And it remains to this day his he's very vocal. It's his favorite character. One other shout out I wanted to, to give because it's blow my mind, especially because the film is so anti-authoritarian, so anarchist, so against specifically the president of the United States. At the beginning of the film, when they're on Air Force One and you have that woman saying all the stuff like whatever we've taken over the plane and how about how awful the current state is, the police state and all of the stuff. And you see a shot of the butt of a gun hitting the door and you, you, you pan up and you see it's a Secret Service agent. The guy who's trying to break into that place is played by Stephen Ford. And <laughs> he just so happens to be the son of the former president, Gerald Ford. Weird. How huh. weird is that? That's really so, weird. <laughs> so fucking meta and layered insane. <laughs> Just really quickly, what did you think of the deleted scene of the robbery? I thought it was pretty good. I could see why they cut it out, though. It doesn't, you don't really need it. I like that they just jumped right in. They mentioned why he was arrested, but you don't know the details of it. I mean, what, what was your take on it? I thought it was very interesting to see, and I agree. And one, I thought it was interesting that you you don't actually see them steal money or transfer money. You see them steal like a duffel bag of fucking credit cards, essentially. And he and his partner, Taylor... Oh, that was the other thing. That's the other director reference that you wouldn't know unless you saw this sequence. The Taylor is a reference to the director Don Taylor, who did Escape from the Planet of the Apes. He did Omen 2. He did a number of interesting genre films, the, the Island of Dr. Moreau that had Burt Lancaster and Michael York. So another director reference for that character. So they do this thing, and and it's it's okay. And they, they take a, a train from Colorado to San Francisco, all underground, uh, and then they get ambushed by the United States police force. And Snake gets caught because he tries to help 
his partner, Taylor, who winds up totally getting like fucking shot. In the audio commentary for the deleted scene, Carpenter says he cut the that intro because, uh, quote, I'm not sure this opening helps the movie at all. I don't think it helps the character at all. It softens him and makes him more normal. It gives him too much reason. It humanizes him not good, which I, I agree. I think it's much better if you don't know. If, if he just comes off that bus like you saw in the theatrical release and he's just, he's talked about. Sometimes it's much more effective if you don't explain where someone comes from or where their reputation came from. Yeah, and I think in this case, it definitely is more effective. Yeah. Yeah, um, I would agree with John Carpenter's take on that 100%. Yeah. There was a couple of things I want to talk about, like some of the uh, themes and motifs. There's a lot of betrayal. There's a theme of betrayal in this film. There are double crosses abound. Everyone is out for themselves at all costs in the film, which I, I think lends a great deal of credibility to the picture and has a degree of cynicism that I'm always comfortable with and enjoy because <laughs> I'm a misanthropic, cynical bastard. But yeah, political dissension, anarchy, anti-authoritarian, disillusion, cynicism, America. Uh, there's a theme of punishment and humiliation, which is also in spaghetti westerns. Uh, this film's not merely content with being anti-authoritarian. It shows a disillusioned America that wants to torture, physically torture and belittle authority, most especially the president, as evidence with, as I said, Donald Pleasance wanting to add the wig and, and stuff like that. And there's an element of the outlaw legend in this film. You know, America, America has a fascination with an admiration of the outlaw especially famous legendary ones. And those legendary outlaws all share many characteristics, characteristics particularly as anti-authority figures. It is a cultural tradition in, in the U.S. and U.K. and in other countries. Historically, there are songs, stories, books, whatever about legendary outlaws. So, and, and so everyone has heard of Snake, uh, but as you point out, they heard he was dead. But also, a very bizarre turn of circumstances. Everyone who says to Snake, I heard you were dead in some form or fashion, there's Cabby, there's Season Hubbley, the girl in the chock full of nuts, who was, who was married. Season Hubbley was married to Kurt Russell at the time, and it was her first role after giving birth to their son. I believe his name's Boston Russell. And John Carpenter was married to Adrian Barbeau at the time. But so, Cabby. Girl in a chock full of nuts, Maggie, the Duke and Brain all say that to Snake. Everyone who says, I heard you were dead to Snake in the film, they all die. Yeah, that's right. And then, as we talked about before, the, the naming of other directors in the film, Frank Doubleday as Romero for George Romero, John Strobel as Dr. Cronenberg for David Cronenberg, John Unger as Snake's partner deleted scene, as I said. Snake is a stand-in for John Carpenter, although Deborah Hill... The producer says that Snake is both really Russell and Carpenter and that they are the two sides of Pliskin. And then there's homages or references to other Westerns. At its core, as I said before, this is very much a Western. It's specifically a, a spaghetti Western. Lee Van Cleef absolutely cements this. Spaghetti Westerns are more cynical than most American Westerns. The, the world is a danger, always an absolute dangerous place. And all alliances are for monetary or survival reasons only. And that's certainly the case in this film. You can never trust any, anyone in a spaghetti western because typically as soon as one person has any kind of advantage, 
they take it. And that's also present in this film. And, and Snake is an anarchist and very much an anti-hero, spaghetti western anti-hero, and I love that. And they're also completely unapologetic about that. Also, I know that Kurt Russell channeled Clint Eastwood for Snake's voice because he thought it would be a riff on the interaction between Lee Van Cleef and be reminiscent of their roles and like such for a few dollars more and good, the bad and the ugly. He says in the audio commentary that they decided it would be fun to do it a bit like Eastwood, that Eastwood, that Eastwood voice quality since they had Lee Van Cleef. Carpenter also goes on to say, and it kind of resonates to Sergio Leone pictures here and in the future. And when Maggie... When they go in to, to get the pre- save the president for their own means, Brain and Maggie, and Brain uses the knife and he kills Romero. What, what isn't that a great fucking death by? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's kind of I, I was I kind of forgot about that. So yeah, because I saw the movie so long ago, it was kind of shocking. You didn't? I didn't think the brain had it in him. No, no. It, so. It's funny because he seems to be fine with the knife. He just doesn't like guns. And there's actually Spaghetti Western specifically for a character like that. The character is called Cuchillo, and he only, which is Spanish for knife, and he has a Spaghetti Western standoff in The Big Gun Down and Run Man Run, the sequel, where he just uses knife. So it kind of, it still all these things bounce around in my head. And it's like, oh, it makes so much sense to me. This is a spaghetti Western. But also when Maggie, after he knifes him, Maggie uses the gun and there's three dudes. When Maggie shoots the three guys in a room, in the executive room, after Brain knifes Romero, his death is, as I said, is amazing. But they're placed in the shot and fall exactly like a Leone sequence in the Dollars Trilogy. It's an obvious homage to Leone with that shot. The way they, the the sound and the way they like, the way they're placed in the scene, the mise-en-scene, and the way they fall is absolutely spaghetti western. Also, the Duke, I don't know if you noticed, uh, the Duke wear, wears cowboy boots. No, I didn't catch that. Interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, the Duke of New York, the final showdown. You talked about stuff that you possibly didn't like or whatever. When I was younger, I, I used to be like, oh, you know, I really wish that the fight between the Duke and Snake was a little bit longer. But but I, I don't mind it now because when you look at everything and you, and you know the backstory of things, it makes sense that the president, Donald Pleasance and the president has been a good a good sport about letting all this shit happen to him. He wants his moment to like get revenge. So I'm ultimately okay with it. But when I was younger, I was like, oh, they should have more like elongated fight or whatever. But it works. I mean, we get that. We get that elongate. We get that with, with spades and they live. <laughs> the fight in they live between Roddy Piper and Keith David is ridiculously long. So I was, re- I was reading something kind of interesting about they're trying to do a remake of Escape from New York. And... James Delmonico, who is behind, he directed the first couple of Purge movies and he's written them all. And he was offered the remake and he turned it down and called the original a perfect film. I thought that Hmm. was pretty interesting. Well, I have not seen any of the Purge films. I am not familiar with this director. I cannot speak to his work, but I can speak to the fact that it's pretty awesome of him to say that. And to take that stance. <laughs> yeah. I know what the Purge movies are about, so I, I wasn't that interested. And they've made 
you know, I think six now. So I definitely don't want to see the later ones. No. <laughs> yeah, it's just so many times. How many times can you have a purge? But I will check out the first one. <laughs> just based on what okay. he said. Right. No, that's cool. That's awesome. I just wanted to finish my thought process on some of the things I noticed in the film. You know, there's a lot in this film, motifs or themes of subverting American and specifically New York iconography, using American symbols to reinforce or illustrate corruption, subversion, or oppression. You have the Statue of Liberty. Liberty Island is the headquarters for the maximum security prison of Manhattan. That's the opposite of Liberty right there. The president is handcuffed to a chair that is covered by the American flag, and he's wearing a blonde wig when he's saved for the second time. Madison Square Garden becomes a gladiator arena where America's favorite pastime of baseball is now a deadly weapon. Baseball bats have nails, and you have garbage can lids as shields, and they're in a wrestling ring. They always there's a lot of anti-consumerism and the film constantly tries to subvert typical American hero. The critical and box office reception. This film cost six million dollars and made twenty five million dollars. It got a seven point two out of ten rating on IMDb and it's a certified fresh with 86 percent tomato meter and 77 percent audience score, which opposed to the sequel, which we have not touched upon whatsoever escape from malay which came out august 9th 1996 one year before this film was supposed to have taken place that movie cost 50 million dollars and only made 25 million so they had ideas to continue uh snake's adventures but because of that it nixed the next film idea of which was escape from earth and then they also had an idea of escape from Mars and that particular screenplay that sequel was written and it became ghost of Mars, which came out in 2001. It was really originally written to be for snake Pliskin, but because of the, the failure at the box office of escape from LA, it became the ghosts of Mars instead of escape from Mars. And Paramount wanted it to be Pliskin was therefore rewritten to be Desolation Williams and he was played by Ice Cube. I've never seen that film, by the way. I don't know if you have. No, I haven't. Not. But getting to final thoughts of the film. Well, one thing I just wanted to mention too, and I don't know if what John Carpenter was referring to when he said this, but he recently said he feels he has at least one, maybe two more Snake Plissken stories in him, which I thought was interesting. Well, if it's Carpenter and Kurt Russell, I'm on board. Yeah, me too. I'm on board. They have my money. If they do it, they have my money. <laughs> <laughs> in closing, I want to say Carpenter said in commentary that this is a world where there are very few good guys left. There's a lot of oppression and brutality, and yet the man who shines and carries out the mission and is the most dependable and the most courageous, courageous of all is the most despicable, toughest criminal. And he also said, we're dealing with an action picture on the edge of comedy and on the edge of being a little too broad, but we seem to pull it off. And I, I agree. Yeah, this could have this been really bad. 
And I think if you look at Escape from L.A., which I'll admit I have not seen the whole thing. I turned it off kind of halfway through. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I just I, I just couldn't go for it. It's not uh, as good. I know. You could kind of see where, where it misses the mark. Yeah, I get it. I saw that in the theater. I have my popcorn bag that has the Escape from L.A. artwork all over it because I'm a nerd. But yeah, I, I get that. I also wanted to say that Deborah Hill, who was the producer of this film, one of the producers, said in the Return to Escape from New York documentary that Snake Plissken represents the other side of America, the unpatriotic, patriotic side of America. And Carpenter also said something that really struck me. He said, Snake is a total individual in a world devoid of individuality. I think that I mean, that sums up the appeal of the character nicely. And sums up why I love this film so much. It deserves it deserves its cult status because it is awesome and a, a clever satire uh, uh, of a contemporary worldview. And and I'll also say that Kurt Russell in the same documentary says the notion that no man is an island is one that he and Carpenter disagree with. They believe that some men are islands. Some men prefer to be islands. I know a large part of John and I are like that. Snake Plissken is that island. So the island of Manhattan and the island of Snake Plissken are two things that not only I love and I live with and live in. This movie is fantastic. It's I, I think it's a good scathing satire of the world in the 70s and the present world we live in. And it's a lot of fun. If you're looking for a complete action film, that's not what this is. This is uh, this is action, sci-fi, dystopia, political commentary, and satire all mixed together. But it's very good. And the score is fantastic. And everyone, everyone, behind the camera and in front of the camera is on the top of their game. And I highly recommend it. Yeah, me too. This is, it's it's everything you said, and it's a ton of fun. You could view all the, the deeper levels of it and the satire aspects, or you could just go in and just, it's a man having the worst day of his life, basically. <laughs> or he's dead and it's going through hell, as you as you uh, put forth early, which, which is an amazing concept, by the way. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I think we're going to wrap things up. Got anything else you want to add? Yes. Thank you for listening. You can find us on the cinephilaclounge.com. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on YouTube. Scott, yes, tell we everyone know. how we added YouTube. Yeah, we added a YouTube channel. Um, I'm slowly getting the older podcast up there, but you can go to YouTube and just search the Cinephiliac Lounge and you'll get our channel. And so far we have episodes one two and five up and by the time you hear this we'll have this one up as well so please uh, subscribe and also give us some feedback let us know what you like let us know what you don't like let us know what you might want to hear about talk to us we're here to, we're here and we want to talk to you yep and the forums are open on the cinephiliaclounge.com so don't forget to go there next time we are going for Halloween Dead Alive this is one of the early Peter Jackson movies, and it is hilarious and scary at the same time. Yes.
So looking forward to that one. Thanks, everyone. See you next time. See you next time.